I'll pose this thought to you. It's been said that the church is the greatest institution ever created on the earth. The church. When you see the word church, the word church in the Greek is the word ekklesia. The word ekklesia is those who belong to Jesus, who have repented of sin, placed their faith and confidence in Christ as Lord. So when we look at scripture and when we look at where we're living today, I would declare to you that the church is the greatest institution ever created on the earth. It is the only thing that Jesus ever promised to build. In Jesus' dialogue in Matthew 16 with Peter, he looks and says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the only thing that Jesus ever promised to build was his church. Now, here's a question I pose to you. Some 2,000 years later, we find ourselves here in Loganville, Georgia. What has gone wrong with the church? We live in a society, not only as we've established of postmodern thinking, pluralism, relativism, etc., but we live now in a society where there's churches on every corner with all these different tag names to them, and for some odd reason, those that claim that Jesus is their daddy just can't get along. Come on. What has gone wrong? Here's a problem. Here's a problem. We've all had experiences in the name of Jesus. I don't care how old you are. If you grew up in the Bible belt of the South, which I've established to be the bondage belt of the South, you had an experience with some type of God Jesus concept. It may have came from church. It may have came from some religious institution. It may have came from some of those relationships and friends you had that were affiliated. It may have came from a leader, but we've all had these experiences in the name of Jesus. The problem is you can't undo an experience. My first introduction as a 13-year-old boy was with an independent fundamental Baptist group down in Noonan, Georgia. And they looked at me and said that if I was really going to follow Jesus, I had to get my hair cut above my ears. I had to stop attending movies. I had to get rid of my Doobie Brothers, Steve Miller Band, and my Eagles LPs. And I definitely had to burn Earth, Wind, and Fire because they were not going to make the trip. Too much of a fantasy world of music. I was told that there could be no mixed swimming and again... If you're going to read the Bible, you've got to read 1611 King James. I struggle with reading. That was my first introduction. Now, that was my experience. It's been said that experience is not always a good teacher, but it is the only school a fool will ever attend. <laughs> I had an experience. The problem is, as I've established, is you can't undo an experience. I started the first of the year with Nick and a few others, and we were going to do the whole 30 eating plan. And we were all fired up that we were going to trim some pounds, and we were going to work out more. And so we said, here we go. There's going to be no dairy. There's going to be no grains. There's going to be no sugar. And then I walked past that slice of pizza and that piece of fried chicken, and all of a sudden my taste buds became aroused because I'd had experience with pizza and a slice of fried chicken. Come on. 
And for some of us, we come in here this morning, and for some of you, you pulled into the parking lot, and for some, you haven't been to church in a while because you had an experience, (laughs) and somebody beat you up and shamed you and guilted you and presented this Jesus concept to you that he was a cosmic sheriff, and all he wanted to do was to blow you up and arrest you. And so we find ourselves confused as we get into it. For some of us, back to the Jesus concept, it was an introduction to legalism. It was an introduction to performing, living a life of duty, not devotion. It was sensationalism. It was emotionalism. And according to what flavor of marinade you came out of, all of a sudden you find yourself kind of shocked and disturbed and not knowing what you really believe. Come on. Anybody like that? Or am I just like doing a devotional today for myself? So we pose the question, who is the real Jesus? Now, John 17 is one of my favorite texts in the Gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you study those Gospel writings, John 17 kind of stands out to me. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. It is the Lord's Prayer. Now, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is not the Lord's prayer. That is the disciples' prayer, and that is a prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples to teach them how to pray. I'm talking about the Lord's prayer today. This was Jesus himself praying and talking to his father, starting in verse 1. Jesus lifting up his eyes to the heavens said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. Now, 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 this right here is like hours away from Jesus uh, walking the Via Della Rosa to die on the cross. Jesus has broken bread. He's had that last communion supper with his disciples. He's washed the disciples' feet. Now Jesus is along with the Father, and Jesus looks and says, Father, I've glorified you. Now my time has come. That which you gave me authority over, I've preserved it. I've done what you've told me to do. Look at verse 3. Jesus even says, this is eternal life. We know it. eternal life is this, that they may believe in you and know that you are the true God and they may believe in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is believing in God, knowing that he is God. Know the word gnosko means to experience, not to have this cognitive concept, that they may know that you're God and they may know that I am God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the one that you sent, that they may know me. And then he goes on to say this, verse 4. I have glorified you on earth by having accomplished the work that you sent me to do. The assignment that you extended to me, that you said, go do it. I just want you to know now, I have done what you've asked me to do. Now, Everything is hinging on his obedience to the Father. Here's why I came to offer my life as a sacrifice and a ransom for all. Now, check out what he says starting in verse 11. You can read the whole thing. Holy Father, keep them. Them. Who is them? Those who have come to faith in Jesus, 
those who have repented of their sin, those who have placed their faith and confidence in Christ as being Yeshua, Hamashiach, the anointed one, the Lord of all. Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one. If you've got a Bible, circle that word. If you've got your bulletin notes, write that word one. One. May they be one as we are one. Then he goes on to say a little later, Father, I pray that you will keep them from the evil one. The prince of this world, Satan himself, he is out to steal, kill, and destroy. He prowls around like a, a lion, roaring, seeking someone to devour, devour. Father, I pray that you would keep them from the evil influence of Satan. That's what he's saying. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We've established truth. It's an unveiling. It means to hide nothing. So Jesus is praying, I want them to be one, established on the centrality of the gospel, that they will know you, that they will know me, that they will be sanctified in the truth, that they will walk in the 66 canonized books that I've established that we call the Holy Bible. I want them to be one. I want them sanctified in the truth. So what he goes on to say in verse 20. I'm not only asking on behalf of these alone right here that have come to believe, the 12 plus others, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. My prayer, this is his cry out to God, is that they may all be one, all, all, all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me, that they would be one, that they would represent a heart of unity to the world so that others that don't know me yet, that will be born some 2,000 years later, will know that it's all about Jesus. I want them to know. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Is that a crazy text? Now, what is the cry of Jesus in this text? That those who say that they are a part of Christ, meaning they've repented, they've come to faith, they say that I am a child of God, I am a Christ follower. We use the word small c, Christian. I'm a Christian. His cry is that we would be one. That we would be united on the essentials, that we would not get caught up into the peripheral, that we would be established on what matters, oneness. So, so if you're asking, maybe you've been here for a while and like, what do you believe? Go to our website, the Cross Loganville. Go up to a, a, a top tab and it will say about us. And then there will be a little link that says who we are and what we believe here as far as our core doctrinal statement. That's important. We've got an entire leadership doctrinal statement that I would love to send you. Because doctrine is essential for direction. Bad doctrine leads to bad direction. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy direction. And so we want to see you know what God says to be true in the word and believe it. So we break down God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, creation, um, man, uh, sin, salvation, 
We believe in grace. We believe that we come to faith in grace through the gospel of Jesus and him alone. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the inspired word of God. All that stuff will be laid down. We want you to know that because that is important. Now, now back to my question. If the church is the greatest institution on the earth, what went wrong? Now, welcome to the deep end. You ready? We're about to go to the deep end. Now, as we established in John 17, Jesus referred to Satan as the evil one. Again, prince of darkness, prince of this world, many other things. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, John is on this Isle of Patmos. And God has given John this incredible revelation of things that are going to unfold in days to come. So John is all ghosted with God, and God has given him this revelation. Now follow this. So he sees the end. He sees this time of rapture, tribulation, all this stuff start to unfold. And he's seeing it, and this is what he writes. John is seeing thousands of years ahead. Of when it all comes to a crashing halt, and he says, Then I heard a loud voice saying, it, it was echoing through heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now God's salvation, his power, the deity has been manifested in a robe of flesh in the person of Jesus. It's come for the accuser of their brethren has been now thrown down. If you study scripture, Satan will eventually be cast into the lake of fire. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He, he, the accuser, watch this, who accuses us before God day and night. What does Satan do? Even Mike and I were talking earlier. If you go back to Job and God says, Satan, where you been? I just been cruising around, wreaking havoc on whoever I can. Why would John write, even in his gospel, that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy? He's all about disruption. He's all about division. He's all about chaos. What is the word for accuse in the Greek? It is the word kategoreia. It's in your notes. So when you study that, what has Satan come to do? He's come to accuse. He's the accuser. He's making an accusation. The word is categoria, and and it means to bring a charge against one in the assembly. It means to create this disruption. It, it, it It is a crazy thought that we live in this culture, and we live in a time where Satan is trying to wreak havoc in every one of our lives. He is the accuser of the brethren, categoria. What English word do we get from categoria? We get the word categorize. The word categorize means to label, to classify, or to stereotype. Denomination, I'm going to go there. Denomination is an interesting word in our day. When you think of classifying, labeling, stereotyping, What did Jesus pray? I want my people that have come to faith in me to be one, even as I and the Father are one. But we live in this society where evangelicals love 
to promote their labels. And so we, we, we live in this world now where you've got all these denominations. Denomination is an interesting word. It comes from the Latin word denonymous, which means to divide the nation. Do you think that's a powerful word? It, it is a scary word. Divide the nation. What did Jesus pray? That they would be one, that they would be perfected in unity, that they would be founded on me. D is a prefix, D-E, that means to shrink and reduce. D, uh, uh, he got demoted. He was shrunk and reduced. He is deteriorating. He is, he's got this degenerative disc, D-E. It means something is shrinking and reducing. Something's not firing the right way. The word disc is the French derivative, and, and, and it means the same thing. When you see the word like uh, discourage, all, all it is is shrinking down and minimizing courage that you're walking in. Makes sense. And so when you look at the word denomination, it comes from the prefix D, and it comes from the word nominate, which means to be selected, chosen, or appointed by God. So we find ourselves in a culture where, where, where we've been flooded by denominationalism. And there's so much rift amongst the body of Christ because we're constantly raising our Baptist and our Presbyterian and our Lutheran and our Pentecostal and our Assembly of God and our Methodist and our banners. And I believe Satan is having a field day saying they're not living in unity. They're living in division. They're living in chaos. Come on, somebody. I told you it's going to be a little deep for us today. So my question would be, could it possibly be that one of Satan's greatest tools and ploys in accusation is to get us hung up on our denominational affiliation so that we drift away from the centrality of the gospel? Could it possibly be that Paul would write in 2 Corinthians eleven three that I'm afraid just as the serpent tempted Eve with its craftiness that your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus Christ? Yeah. And so I declare to you today that the Cross Loganville is a non-denominational church, not that we're against a lot of our brothers and sisters out there. But we're non-denominational, and our pledge is to stay centered on Jesus Christ and him alone. The peripheral arguments will be there forever, but we're going to stay founded on who is Jesus, and we're going to stay founded on the teachings and the claims in Scripture. So maybe you would ask, why are there so many denominations? And that would be a great question to ask. If you go back and study church history... On Hallow's Eve 1517, October, October 31st, Martin Luther was a monk. He was a part of the Roman Catholic Church, if you will. And Martin Luther had been studying the book of Romans. And Martin Luther in Romans chapter 1 was blown away with the teaching of the text that says that we're justified through faith and faith alone. So Luther after much study, has compiled these 95 arguments that are contention with the Catholic Church. And on Hallow's Eve 1517, he nails these 95 theses to the church door to say, we need to talk. 
We've got some tension going on here, and I want to dialogue about some of these points that, that, that I don't find biblically accurate. Well, based on history, the church leaders tried to kill Martin Luther because he was going to rock the boat. And so after Luther nails these 95 theses, you'll hear people say that Luther was the great proponent of what we call the Reformation. He was trying to reform what was happening. He was trying to reshape what was there. And so as a result of Luther's work, man, things started to spin out of control, if you will, because that's where we find ourselves today. John Calvin comes on the scene, and Arminian comes on the scene, and so you've got two major umbrellas of theological persuasion in our culture. People are either Calvinistic or Arminian for the most part, and so what that really means is you get these different arguments and views when it comes to the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and whether you're a pre-tribber or a post-tribber, or like me, I'm a pan-tribber, meaning I believe it's all going to pan out in the tribulation the way God wants it, but you get all these different views. And as a result of that, you've got people that view baptism differently. Some sprinkle, some dunk, some do this. All of a sudden, even amongst the charismatic, you, you see an emphasis on the sign gifts or the revelatory gifts. But even many of my friends in the charismatic movement, just like the Baptist movement, just like the Presbyterian movement, all of a sudden they start to disagree and they splinter. And so where way back after Luther, you had about four main groups. You had the Lutheran, you had the Methodist, you had the Anabaptist, and you had the Anglicans. Now we live in a society where we've got more denominational uh, names going on than we can shake a stick at. Yeah, you ever noticed that? Now, how does that promote the lordship of Jesus and get us back to the central prayer that he prayed? Lord, I want my people to be one. I want them established on what really Matters. I want them focused on the keys. I want them to stay on me. And I'm not against. I'm not against the denominations. I was ordained and licensed in a Baptist church. And I think I'm about as non-Baptist as they get. I've got some of my friends who come out of Assembly of God and Church of God. And they're about as non-Church of God as you can get. One of my favorite writers, Max Licato, was a Church of Christ dude. Man, I really love reading Licata. Chuck Swindoll is an evangelical free guy. Man, God has used Swindoll so great in my life to encourage me. And so you get such a blend of people that really ran back to the centrality of the gospel and established themselves on sanctifying themselves in truth. Come on. Is this uh, enlightening a little bit so far? All right, y'all with it? So, so it's interesting when you start to study what's happened. Now, denominations can oppose a mandate for the unity of God. It really can. That's one of the things I'll look at is why is there so much division? Why do people want to sit around and argue and fight for days on predestination and election? People do it all the time. And I understand it's an important theological concept, but why debate it and fight it? And sometimes we've gotten so far off center I had a guy tell me when I first came to faith in Christ and was playing baseball, he said, if you don't speak in tongues, man, you're not saved and you haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I knew people that were in love with Jesus that spoke in tongues, but also knew other people in love with Jesus that didn't speak in tongues. 
And so you can't a la carte the gifts. If the Bible says that God gave certain gifts, he gave certain gifts. And some people have some gifts and some people don't have the same gifts that the other person has. But it doesn't mean that you're giftless. And so we create all these wars. A lot of denominations, man, when they first started, you go back and study the history. It was not launching a new direction. It was really a self-promotion of the individual so that he could stay in control. Come on. The media uses our denominational differences at times against us to show how the body of Christ, even when it comes to key issues, are not united. And so the church is really uh, dogged in the media, if you will. It's a very interesting world in which we live. Now, what is your heart? My heart is to see us centered up on Jesus Christ and him crucified. My heart is to see us glory in the gospel. Because I, I wanted to talk about this this week as we've established truth and moving into truth and sharing truth with compassion. Because as we start to look at these different groups in our society, I wanted to be able to differentiate between denominations and other religions and cults. Now, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist. Methodists were named after John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley. I mean, he was all about creating methods to help people grow. The Presbyterians were all about looking back at the word elder and shepherd and pastor and the Presbyteros and having strong leadership. A lot of good stuff came out of that. Luther, the Lutherans out of him, the Anabaptists, the Baptist people, man, they wanted to get that baptism piece right. And every one of these groups, if you study for the most part, the majority of them started by good people who really loved Jesus that just had some opinion differences. But what ended up happening, instead of being this far apart, they ended up in their differences becoming this far apart. Now, when you start to look at denominations, you've got to be careful. Now, we're going to look at cults. Cults is different. The Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and the Scientology and all these people, what they've done is they've denounced the deity and lordship of Jesus, and they don't even claim to be Christ followers. Then we'll spend a little time looking at religious groups because you've got these religious groups like Hinduism and, and Buddhism and Islam. And religious groups are different than cults, and cults are uh, way different than denominations. But as we've established in this series, 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. Allow Jesus Christ to be set apart as the Lord in your life. Always be ready to give an answer or a hope or make a defense for the hope that you have within you, but yet do it with gentleness and reverence. So God is calling each and every one of us to be able to stand up in this postmodern, flooded with denomination world and to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. I'm not here to fight you over your extreme doctrine. I'm going to take you back to the centrality of Christ and say, tell me who he is. Tell me what you're going to do with Jesus. Just because you can articulate these other arguments and maybe find strength in your argument, it's all about Jesus. It's not about, as Mike and I have talked over the weeks, it's not about us trying to prove that we're right. It's not about us trying to prove that anybody else is wrong. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is standing before God right now, making accusations and claims and classifying you and stereotyping you right now. Where's Jesus? 
Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, seated. Based on Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is able to save forever, ever, ever those who draw near to him. He always lives to make intercession for us. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of Abba making intercession right now. The greatest defense attorney on the planet, God's son, my lawyer, and his daddy is the judge, is pleading my case. 1 John 2, 1, my children, I'm writing to you so that you do not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. And not only is he the propitiation for our sin, but he's the propitiation for the sin of the world. He is the ultimate atoning sacrifice. So Satan is out to still kill and destroy. He wants to He wants to pick our pockets. He wants to rip us off. He wants to see you live in habitual defeat. Here's here's a question I want to ask you. Let's stop and listen to this one. That we would be one as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. When people make accusations, and I'm not saying in the body of Christ that we don't reprove and rebuke and, and help people in their journey, but when accusations are made, Based on scripture, is that coming from the prince of peace or is that coming from the prince of darkness? I had a guy write an email this week or a Facebook note, which I should get rid of Facebook. (laughs) Facebook should die, Mike. Facebook is a nasty thing. But this guy writes a note and says, well, shortly after you came to the church, I left and I had to move out of town. But it seems to me now the ministry of the cross is all about you and little about Jesus. And I was like, interesting. I just wanted you to know that because I voted on you when you came to be their pastor. I wrote him back. Appreciate your note. Number one, there was not a vote, so you didn't vote. (laughs) Number two. Number two. Based on my study of accusations, they come from the pit of hell. You're making an accusation. If you were a man of integrity, you would call me and you would ask if we could sit down to talk. For you to use social media to broadcast your ignorance is a very sad commentary of you. And Mike knows a lot of my notes I send. I send them, then I delete them, and then I keep them for myself. Because that's exactly what ends up happening. And there's a lot of people in the church that attack other people in the church. And they make accusations against other people in the church. But the accuser of the brethren is not Jesus. Jesus cares about seeing your story redeemed and your story restored. Jesus has come that we might have life. We don't trivialize and minimize sin. But as we extend truth with compassion, we want to see you redeemed. And we want to see you moving in a healthy way. So when you are tempted to make an accusation against another person, you've got to stop and go, that is not consistent with the Prince of Peace. That reflects the Prince of Darkness. And the Prince of Darkness no longer has patrol or control of my soul. I am now a new child in Jesus Christ. If we cleaned up a lot of that stuff, 
man, we would flourish in health. And if we centered back up on the gospel of who Jesus is and who he is alone and got away from trivializing all these external peripheral things that have become the center for some people, man, what would happen? Back to Revelation chapter 12. I heard a voice out of heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. God's power, his authority, his kingdom is now personified in Jesus and him alone. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses us before the throne day and night. Come on, somebody. Verse 11. And they, the redeemed, who were all about Jesus, overcame him, the accusations and the lies from hell, through the blood of the Lamb and through the power of their testimony, and they loved not even their own lives to the point of death. That's one of my favorite passages. That's one of my favorite passages right there as a child of the king. As we walk into this world, we're overcomers in Jesus Christ. How did they overcome? They overcame through the blood of the Lamb of God. They had been cleansed once and for all, sins forgiven. They were free now to walk in the holiness of God. They, they overcame the accuser. They overcame the deceit through the power of their testimony. They lived like they said they were. They were who they claimed they were, no matter where you saw them. The word of their testimony, they shared the good news of the gospel, which ties back in to John 17. Not only am I praying for these right now, Father, but those 2,000 years later in Loganville that will be praying with people and sharing my good news with those people. I'm praying for them. How did they do it? Through the word of their testimony. And, and they did not even love their own lives to the point of death. I mean, the evangelical news and broadcast this week were talking about those guys that were martyred by the members of that Islamic extreme group called ISIS. And the word was when many of these guys had bowed before they were to be killed through decapitation or whatever, that many of these guys were heard just screaming, Jesus, Jesus Jesus, they had already died. Those guys knew that they had been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, that wasn't them that was living. It was Christ now living in them. The life they were living, they were living by faith in the Son of God who loved them. They had already died to themselves. Now their earthly bodies expired. And they love not even their own lives to the point of death. So a lot of times I write my little poetic piece as I study a scripture. Revelation 12, 10 and 11. Here's my poetic piece to wrap it. Kicked out of heaven, flooded with pride, create confusion, I will seek to divide. Accuse the redeemed, this I'll achieve. Loving their labels, I'll keep them deceived. Unity disrupted, confused, and maligned, waving their banner, denominational signs. 
It appears I'm winning. What's that sound I hear? Salvation has come. God's power is near. It's the blood of the lamb. They're echoing song. Their witnesses bold. They're singing so strong. Am I being defeated? Is this how it ends? King Jesus victorious. He ultimately wins. Wins. 